0: This is Car Expert
1: For those who perhaps were a little bit disappointed by the old HRV It's definitely a much, much better car overall I just don't know if it justifies that price
2: This is the closest thing you can get to walking into a showroom And buying a brand new 1985 vehicle that's
3: just rolled Mm. off the factory floor With that new Ford V6 diesel engine You have the recipe for a really market-exclusive, specific, well-honed vehicle That'll do really well
0: Hello, Mike Costello.
3: Hello, Mandy Turner. Hello, William Stopford. Hello, Mandy Turner.
0: (laughs) Let's start off with some more amazing news. I know we've sort of been giving an update of this every couple of weeks, but the car expert medium SUV mega test video on YouTube just continues to get more views, MoCo. It's insane.
3: Yeah, it's just clocked over 3 million views, which is an extraordinary figure. Um, so, you know, it's another milestone for us to celebrate as we grow this YouTube channel into something uh, really great. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's it's not all about numbers, but it's very edifying to see it. So, Paul and Igor and all the team did a stellar job with that. And, um, yeah, it's worth calling out.
0: Been getting some good comments as well from the video on, on the actual yeah. like, on YouTube
3: Video, yeah. I don't always love YouTube comments in the general <laughs> sense, but I think we're very lucky. We've we've sort of cultivated and courted a, a great base of very enthusiastic followers, and you know, there's there's the odd bit of misbehavior, but I think as as a rule, our comment section is actually pretty great. And you can't mm-hmm. always say that about YouTube comment sections. God no. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, today I was having a bit of a read of your latest opinion piece, MoCo. It's titled "Maserati is flying, and we should be all thankful." I'm pretty happy they're flying too, but why should we be
1: thankful?
3: Well, I've never been a huge Maserati fan. I mean, I admire the company. It's one of the most storied companies of them all. But, you know, the last few that I've driven, they had great sort of Ferrari-derived engines, but they tended to feel like overpriced Chryslers inside. They were very dated. You know, their looks didn't always work. Um, they sort of felt like, you know, we all know FCA was struggling financially, and it kind of showed. But under Stellantis' leadership, Maserati really has turned itself around. And I don't think as a motoring enthusiast alive that doesn't want that company to to be fit and firing as a sort of Italian Porsche competitor to sit below Ferrari in the sort of pecking order. Um, and I recently uh, drove the MC20 uh, supercar that uh, uses a brand new called Nettuno uh, V6 engine, which is extraordinarily potent 2.9 seconds to 100Ks, butterfly doors, carbon fiber, incredibly minimalist interior. I uh, took it for a burn around Phillip Island. It did some sort of silly speeds and you might say uh, I've been drinking the Kool-Aid after my my wonderful kind of multi-lap experience in an Italian uh, rear-engine supercar, mid-engine supercar, but I think the, the way that that vehicle feels so resolved and it feels like a very cohesive, well-engineered piece of kit suggests that all the things that the company's working on are going to be a lot better than the things that preceded them. Now, we know that there's an electric Gran Turismo in the works, which is just around the corner. Um, we know that the, the Grecale compact crossover SUV is almost here in Australia, and it looks like every inch the Porsche Macan competitor. There's a new Quattroporte confirmed. There's a new Levante confirmed over the next few years. By 2030, the company will be EV only. And you know, love it or hate it, that is the future. And it is good to see that the company has the resources to actually embrace that future. And I think just when you put everything together, you see that. I'm not saying it's going to immediately overtake Porsche on the sales race or anything like that, but rather than having this kind of ad hoc approach, there's a real cohesion to the company now. There's a real vision. There's a real plan. It's obviously well-funded. And based on the first product that it's released, which is sensationally good, and obviously a halo that will sort of you know uh, trickle its, its, its brand-building ways upon all the other cars, I think there's a lot of scope for excitement. And I have not said that about Maserati for quite some time, if ever. And it's really important for Stellantis, for
2: Maserati to succeed because it is their only luxury brand. It sits above their tier of multiple premium brands like Alfa Romeo and DS and and, and soon to be Lancia. But it's very interesting to see all of this attention being lavished on Maserati because if they do this right, they can really burnish its reputation, which maybe isn't the strongest of these upscale uh, luxury brands at the moment, Mm. Uh, but it could turn into a real profit centre for Stellantis potentially. So I'm very curious. That's
3: exactly it. I mean, Porsche is such a lucrative part of the Volkswagen empire. I don't think Stellantis is really getting Maserati, uh, sorry, um, Alfa Romeo right, I should say, um, just yet. I mean, it's early on in that company's rebuilding process, but Stellantis doesn't have a perfect track record. But I think as far as Maserati is concerned, yeah, uh, they're doing a really good job. I cannot wait to see some of the new metal. And like I said before, uh, I probably wouldn't have said that about Maserati even a few years ago.
2: They're just going to really need to keep their products fresh and updated regularly because I think that's that's one criticism that uh, people have made of, of the current range of Maserati products. They are quite old. They have like mm. the, the Ghibli and the Quattroporte and the Levante all received updates recently, but um, Maserati has been stretching out its product Life cycles quite a little bit, so we'll just have to see if that changes under Stellantis.
0: What do you think the secret has been behind this shift, uh, Moko? Is it someone new that's come in, or do you reckon they've just all got together and said, "Now we need to do something"?
3: Yeah, well, I mean, the, uh, under the new sort of corporate structure that was the the sort of merging of the the Peugeot Citroen world and the you know the FCA uh, Fiat Chrysler world into one big entity, there's a whole new management in place. It's a whole new sort of umbrella company. But the the thing that Tavares, the head of that organisation, did was he basically gave every one of the multitude of brands that exist under that umbrella enough money to come up with the next generation of products to see whether they justify their existence or not. And I think in the fullness of time, not all those brands are gonna gonna do that. As Will said, though, Maserati is a hugely important piece of that puzzle because, quite frankly, it's very profitable. The Trident badge is iconic. It's very famous. It's, it's, it's certainly one of the most important strategic pieces in that wider puzzle. And when you put the best people onto things, when you give them good resources, when you tap into a storied history and you have a, an adoring fan base that are willing to be loyal – you know, it's it's not that hard to turn things around as long as everybody is sort of pulling in the same direction. And while I'm not privy to the internal conversations at Maserati all the way in Italy, I think it's abundantly clear that there is a heck of a lot more idea of what to do with the brand than there was previously.
2: It's a bit interesting if you look over at another major European automaker that has so, so many brands, the Volkswagen Group. They've got multiple luxury brands, which means that they can share engines and platforms and, and other mechanics. Components across multiple brands. Now we are seeing Maserati. Uh, the upcoming Grecale will share its platform um, with the Alfa Romeo Stelvio and Julia. But I will be very curious to see how much uh, attention Stellantis lavishes on Maserati in terms of its own engines, its own platforms, etc.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, the Nettuno engine, which is a unique Maserati engine, will be in the Grakali as a top specker. so I think they'll definitely be that. The magic dust of Maserati's unique stuff will, will persevere, and then at the lower end, they'll be shared componentry, and a lot of the things that you see in touch will be unique to the brand bespoke luxury leather lined all those things you think of when you think maserati but underneath yeah there'll be a heck of a lot that's shared with other solantis brands which is how you cut the costs which is how you actually fund these things in the first place so mm-hmm. solantis has a really good playbook to follow it can just follow what porsche did um and you know if it does that i think everybody uh who is a motoring tragic with octane running through their veins uh can be very excited about what's to come
0: Yeah, just reading the comments off the back of that opinion piece too, Moko. There's a lot of love for Maserati, which is uh, wonderful to see. So head to the site and uh, check it out. Okay, let's get stuck into some news. Uh, Now, the Volkswagen ID van Moko, um, it could be quite some time until we see it here in Australia.
3: Oh, the same old story, isn't it? Um, So I attended an event this week with Volkswagen Commercial Vehicles. Um, Volkswagen's very keen to separate its passenger and commercial divisions into two. Um, Ryan Davies is the Australian director of that company. And the obvious question to ask him was ID Cargo. We've seen the ID bars. We've seen the ID Cargo. These things that hark back to the iconic combi van, but they're a future-facing electric-only people mover and and load van. Surely, Ryan, we said Australia must be keen for this car. his response was um, was pretty emphatic, actually. We're constantly looking uh, not only to local governments, he said, but fleet customers about what our future looks like for electric vehicles because it's in high demand. They want to move that way sooner rather than later, is what he told us. ID cargo is firmly on our radar as well as ID buzz, which all sounds fantastic, right? Oh, wow, electric combi is going to come to Australia. Problem, of course, is, and the next bit of his quote, probably the earliest we could anticipate selling it is late 2024 which actually means 2025 now we've seen Volkswagen do this already with the ID3 ID4 and ID5 it's you know future facing electric hatch and SUV range already well and truly on sale in Europe in China in North America still not going to hit Australia until next year at the very earliest basically the situation is Volkswagen in Germany has only so many EVs it can produce and it will always prioritise those countries that have binding CO2 targets that force them to export EVs there or face fines if they don't because that generates demand. That's a carrot and stick that basically means EVs will be sent there and Australia will only ever really get the dregs. Until production is at the levels that it needs to be to supply the globe. That's a very long way of saying Australia, despite there being demand for electric vans, is going to have to wait for this Volkswagen one. And Volkswagen's going to have to be very careful not to miss the boat because while the ID Buzz and ID Cargo are the two undoubtedly coolest looking bands around, there will be some competition. The Renault Kangoo EV is already on sale here, but the next gen one is confirmed. Um, Ford is about to launch the e-transit, and then in 2024, the e-transit custom, a smaller version. The Mercedes-Benz e and EQV People Mover are going to come this year as well, and the e is just around the corner too. So we're seeing a lot more movement in this electric band space, not to mention a plethora of Chinese companies like BYD and LDV that are all sniffing around as well. So... Volkswagen has got a bit of a problem. It really wants them. Its customers really want them. It just can't get them, um, which is a familiar story that we're getting used to hearing. But I suppose the positive takeaway is, hey, at least it is on the radar, albeit quite distantly uh, distantly in the future.
0: Is it going to be a little bit out of date with the rest of the world by the time it gets here, though.
3: Well, I mean, look, we live in such strange times, don't we? Where we're just so yeah. used to we used to supply snags and delays and hold-ups, and that's just the world we live in now. Mm. It doesn't matter whether it's a carton of milk or some 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 bits of wood for a building project or a car. You sort of seem to have to wait for it. So, yeah, true. I think to a degree, everybody's in the same boat, but I, I do certainly think that Volkswagen's been a pretty early mover in this space in its key markets, um, and it won't have that luxury in Australia. It will be entering a much more mature EV market, and that, of course, does come with its challenges. So, it's going to be really interesting to see how Volkswagen tackles that.
0: Mm. Um, Now, our next story, Will, the Tesla Cybertruck. Why am I not surprised that it's probably not going to be here in Australia?
3: Oh,
2: because it's. Uh, <laughs> sighs audibly All we reads can do the is laugh transcript. It's sigh, right? It's a- it was revealed back in. Oh. It was 2019,
3: surely. I remember I was on one of the, I was in Miami when it got announced. I was on a, uh, remember when you used to actually travel around the world for this job? Uh, well, we did. Um, and uh, yeah, it was before COVID. It was in a much more innocent time when we thought the world was just going to be great and normal forever. So I remember viscerally, it was indeed 2019. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been delayed
2: subsequently. And now the most recent development is, unless you are going to Tesla's US, uh, Canadian or I think Mexican website. Uh, you can no longer put down a refundable $150 deposit on a Cybertruck. There's simply a get updates button in its place. Um, Now, there were people that were suggesting that uh, the Cybertruck might not be coming here. And some of Elon Musk's remarks actually seem to echo that, um, because he said some time ago, as far back as September 2020, uh, he said um, that we'll probably now just keep in mind that Elon Musk often just kind of spitballs things. And he'll be talking in an interview or a conference and he'll, he'll say, oh, yeah, we're thinking about maybe doing an electric hatchback this year, and then that never happens. So. Mm. <laughs> um, but he suggested in September 2020 that we'll probably make an international version that's smaller. It will still be cooler. It will just be smaller because you can't just make a giant truck like that for international markets. But then uh, a little bit later that year, he said even 3% smaller is too small. So, I mean, inside the mind of Musk, I I, I can't fathom. Um, but it seems like if you are really keen to get your hands on a Cybertruck, and it is, it is a vehicle that really polarizes. It really polarizes. On one hand, I always love to, you know, cheer when, when automakers dare to do something different. I mean, sometimes it doesn't. Work out Pontiac Aztec, but I like that, yeah, that they that Tesla thought let's do something different rather than just doing another electric pickup truck. But it also strikes me as a little bit juvenile um, because some of his remarks when it was revealed was, Oh, we just wanted to make a really cool looking ute and we just wanted it to look like it was from the future and and blah, blah, blah. Seemed like it didn't really have much of an appreciation of of what the typical ute buyer would want, almost as if they weren't actually looking at what the typical ute buyer would want um, or need. Um, And look, we'll just have to wait and see when it actually comes, if it actually ends up coming to Australia. Uh, But if you did put down a deposit on one in Australia, you're probably going to be getting that refunded to you.
0: Do we know how many people put a deposit down? Will
2: no um, Tesla doesn't keep uh, like an official tally, and I'm not aware off the top of my head. Mm. Uh, I think yeah. there's there's probably if you, yeah, yeah, there's probably a website that does some kind of crowdsourced tally out there because Tesla mm. enthusiasts are very enthusiastic. <laughs> <laughs> um, they certainly are. Yes, but um, Elon Musk did say quite recently that. Um, we have more orders of the first Cybertrucks than we could possibly fulfill for three years after the start of production. So as much as I might mock uh, the Cybertruck and a lot of other people mock it, there are also a lot of really passionate people that really want to get their hands on one. But Tesla has wisely said um, that uh, they are going to be focusing on their existing models and um, ramping up production at their new plants. They just opened a plant in Germany this year. They opened another one in the US and Texas. Um, And there's obviously so much demand for the model three and model y at the moment so they uh he did say earlier this year uh that uh, the cybertruck along with the semi and the roadster uh they'll be ready to bring those to production hopefully next year if you've been waiting a while for a cybertruck please spare a thought for anybody that has been waiting for a semi or a roadster because they were revealed even earlier and have been delayed even more times
0: like it's about 10 years ago now, probably. <laughs> Feels like close it. to it. Um, now, Michael, Volkswagen and Walkenshaw are teaming up again.
3: Yeah, I don't want this new segment to become, you know, Volkswagen expert, but I think this is a really interesting development. So, um, Volkswagen has done what a lot of car brands have done recently and teamed up with an Australian engineering firm to actually make a more hardcore, uh, sort of more uh, effective, dedicated flagship version of its pickup truck, the Amarok, or its ute, the Amarok. Um, uh, It's called the W Series. There's been a road-focused one called the W580S, and there's now an off-road one called the W580X. Things like forty mil suspension lift, upgraded uh, rear suspension, chunky off-road tires, you know, forged wheels, rock sliders, protection, all that sort of stuff to really give that car a bit of a send-off. Um, but what's interesting to me is that. Volkswagen has said that it's going to persist with this walk-and-shore arrangement into the future with the next-gen Amarok, which is going to be revealed in July this year and and arrive in Australia in early 2023. Of course, that car is based on the Ford Ranger, but Ford is not going to let Volkswagen rebadge a Ranger Raptor, so the company had to come up with its own sort of halo model to compete and don't forget, this is a market that has things like the Nissan Navara Warrior by Premcar, the Toyota Rugged X, which is assembled here locally, um, as in it's finished off here locally with all of its add-on bits, the Mazda BT50 Thunder. There is a voracious demand for these modified turnkey pickups, from people who don't really want to go through the process of dealing with the aftermarket. They just kind of want to have a ready-to-roll solution at the dealer with a factory warranty that they don't have to stress about. Um, Walkinshaw, ever since the demise of Holden, obviously being involved with HSV, has pivoted not only to its racing teams, but also has round-the-clock re-engineering right-hand drive production lines for uh, the Ram 1500 and the Chevy Silverado truck. It does suspension work for LDV, the Chinese pickup maker, and obviously Volkswagen too. So it's a big Melbourne company that supports a lot of Aussie jobs and Aussie ingenuity, and I think the fact that Volkswagen is committed to continuing that relationship into the future is a great thing, because it means that this burgeoning industry of engineering and design and manufacturing in Australia of, of existing vehicles that are brought here and then modified um, has a really you know sort of fruitful future, and and I cannot wait to see what. This sort of very storied engineering firm and and remanufacturing firm can bring to the table um, to make the Amarok as cool as it can be. And I guess when you consider the fact that uh, Australia will be far and away the biggest market for the new gen Amarok. In fact, if Australia didn't have it, they probably wouldn't bother doing it at all. Um, With that new Ford V6 diesel engine um, that's similar to the outgoing Volkswagen V6 diesel engine, you have the recipe for a really market exclusive specific well-honed vehicle that'll do really well. So um, it's, it's a little bit about the existing products, but for me, it's more about what the future holds and I am absolutely here for it. Well,
2: it's really interesting because uh, the Ranger Raptor will only be coming here with a petrol V6 engine um, and we won't be getting a diesel V6 Raptor in Australia. So, if you want a Ranger slash Amarok that's a bit tougher, maybe tougher looking, a little bit higher off the ground, maybe a little bit better off-road, but you want a V6 diesel, uh, you'd probably be wise to go over to Volkswagen showroom and look at whatever... Walk and Sharama or Creation they come up with next.
3: Yeah. And I mean, look, I think ultimately I don't want to sort of come across as saying that the traditional way of modifying a 4x4 doesn't have a place. I mean, if you're a really hardcore enthusiast that knows what you want, um, you're probably better off going to ARB or Ironman or you know, TJM or any number of these aftermarket companies and specking and designing and creating your own little project. But you know, the, the advantage of a vehicle like this is it's engineered as one cohesive piece. Everything is put together and then it is tested as a single unit, which means it all talks to each other. Everything is integrated nicely. You don't have to worry about going through all the steps that an enthusiast might want to. So I think this is a really nice way that OEMs can not only tap into that really lucrative aftermarket and make some cash on the side, but they can also offer customers something they want too. And I think this one looks like the absolute sort of cutting edge of that sort of deal. And hey, who knows where it could go? It could even lead to exports. We could even be exporting vehicles <laughs> out of Australia God. again, which it would be a pretty be amazing. amazing development. I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna say that's a fait accompli or anything, but it's a very interesting thing to think about.
0: Mm, totally. Well, another Ute that is very popular in Australia will. The Toyota Land Cruiser 70 series, and we've got updates detailed and it's coming in just quite a few months.
2: Yes, Toyota's been doing this slow drip feed of all the updates they're rolling out across their model lineup. And the Land Cruiser 70 series, which in its current form dates back to 1984 from memory. <laughs> um is finally getting autonomous emergency braking with pedestrian and cyclist detection. So that will actually make it the first piece of active safety technology to join the 70 series' equipment list. Now – I would say the 70 series Land Cruiser probably has only the bare essentials when it comes to safety equipment, Uh, for example, that aren't even side airbags, except in the single cab chassis model from memory. Um, But Toyota made this announcement that they were going to roll out AEB, uh, and we know that there's uh, a lot of fleets that uh, require a certain safety rating. And of course, there's just a general awareness in the market that, oh, AEB is a really useful safety feature. And we've seen over the past few years, pretty much every ute has gotten it but in this announcement as well toyota also said that it's made some design requirements that have enabled it to increase its the gross vehicle mass to more than 3500 kilo which bumps up the vehicle's payload figure and pushes it from the light to medium goods category now mike correct me if i'm wrong but does that not mean that now it doesn't have to uh, make any structural enhancements to mm. the Toyota to pass ADR eighty five hundred, the new side impact regulation that has caused so many companies to discontinue vehicles?
3: Yeah, there's a Machiavellian genius to it, isn't it? You read the press release and it says, oh, we've given you more payload and a higher GVM, woohoo, which is genuinely great because at the end of the day, people that buy the 70 series are some of the most sort of hardcore, toughest users out there. But of course, uh, the real factor behind all this is exactly that. It enters a new vehicle categorization, the 3501 kilogram gvm and above category which means it does have a different set of standards to meet which uh, as far as i can tell and i'm not a lawyer but as far as i can tell does sort of ensure that vehicle will remain viable even without certain features that you mentioned into the future so um look it's very clever from toyota you know you can't argue that um there is an argument that you know um Perhaps it could have engineered the vehicle to live up to the requirements regardless. But then again, at the same time, there's a massive demand. This vehicle's got a two-year waiting list, last time I checked, at least at some dealerships. There's enormous demand for the 70 Series. There's almost nothing else like it if you want a, you know, sort of very antiquated, old school, but, you know, incredibly tough vehicle. So, it would be a bit of a tragedy for a lot of regional people if the vehicle was discontinued altogether. So, you know, there's there's definitely pros and cons to it, but this at least gives it a new lease of life.
2: It's uh, it's very clever. We made it safer, but we didn't make it as safe as we had to. <laughs> we're,
0: we're well, just...
3: technically, they did make it as safe yeah. as they had to. They yeah. just changed the parameters. But you oh. know what? I, I'm I'm a I'm a skeptic and a cynic, and you know I. But I, a part of me does have to doff my hat to Toyota here. They've they've kind of played the system pretty well, I think. <laughs> it's, it is
2: very interesting. Um, they did not mention in their press release anything about other body styles featuring uh, side airbags. So we know that they engineered the single cab chassis to feature cur- sorry, curtain airbags and a driver's knee bag a few years ago. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, that was related to its viability as a fleet vehicle for mines, um, which had safety standards uh, that they wanted to follow with any of their fleet purchases. Um, but the Troopy, the wagon and the dual cab chassis, they don't have anything beyond driver and passenger airbags like it's not So, uh, we'll see if that changes. But again, if Toyota doesn't have to, uh, they might not. And there are a lot of people out there who are genuinely jealous of, of Australia that we can still buy something this basic. I mean, you're it. As much as they've made updates over the years, this is the closest thing you can get to walking into a showroom and buying a brand new 1985 vehicle that's just rolled huh. off the factory floor. It's, it's, there's, you're right, Mike. There's really nothing else like it. Yeah.
3: I drove a troopy around Australia once, and I can tell you um, it has its charms, it also has its drawbacks. But then again, if you're doing a certain sort of job, there's really nothing else for you.
0: Uh, hit the news link at carexpert.com.au to read more.
3: The Honda HRV is now in
0: Australia and it's just a little bit different to its predecessor. To see how these changes have stacked up, James Wong is the man to ask as he's spent some time behind the wheel of this SUV. Hello, J-Wo.
1: Hello, guys and girls. How are you? <laughs> now, has
0: these changes been a long-awaited step forward for the HRV and Honda in general?
1: Um, in some ways, yes, and in others, no. I guess when you look at um, the the way that Honda's rolling out its new products at the moment, they're, they're taking a very different strategy to how they have previously, where they're minimizing variants. they're introducing uh, well they've already introduced but they're doing like premium pricing and, and premium positioning for their products and um it's it's a very different way of buying a honda or just cars in general now um and when with regards to the hrv not crv um the the product has, has evolved into something very different to what the previous one was the last hrv was very you know budget friendly very focused on maximizing the space in a very small car and um Perhaps even though it was probably targeted at a younger demographic, which is generally what small SUVs are targeted at. I think that the last one was still very old school in terms of tech and design and things like that. It was very conventional in a lot of ways and had that sort of smart packaging that might appeal to maybe a more mature buyer <laughs> whereas, <laughs> whereas this new one it's taken a really different form factor it's they, they really wanted to drive home the like suv coupe design when i when i went to the launch and you know it still has those um hidden rear door handles in the c pillow and it's got a sort of like a fast back tailgate now it's a lot more modern and aggressive looking and it it doesn't really look like the old one um Mm. a lot of cars tend to you know sort of evolve over time whereas it it maybe isn't a whole revolution of the design but it's sort of going back to what the original hrv from the late 90s was like in that it's very very out there um it's kind of futuristic it's 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 different it, it breaks the mold a little bit which is what i think honda was best known for in in its heyday. Um, In terms of like what changes have been made, well, now there's a a hybrid for the first time in Australia. It's something that we've missed out on um, to other markets for quite some time. And um, so now it has a a rival for something like a Toyota CHR hybrid or – um, a Mazda MX-30 mild hybrid because now electrification is sort of like the it thing right now. Um, but there's a few things that aren't so great. So now we only get a four-seater interior because Honda couldn't be bothered engineering a top tether point for the middle seat. And so therefore, they just decided to take it all out. And um, the high, the the way that the, the range is structured now is you can't get one for under $35,000 drive away. You know, back in the day, that you could get a base HRV for like $25,000 plus, on roads which translated to about twenty seven 28990 28, 990 drive away so now the, the the base model which is probably more in line with a mid spec model in terms of equipment and specification starts at just over thirty six thousand dollars drive away whereas the hybrid and um, make sure you have held your breath for this one is' forty five thousand dollars for a jazz based um, SUV hybrid which is A lot of money in anyone's books. Um, When I sort of did the competitor analysis in my written review, um, it was very interesting to see how the prices had rised over the years. So, now you can get like a top spec Yaris Cross Hybrid or a, a Toyota CHR Hybrid for a little bit less, maybe like Anywhere between forty-one and forty-three grand. Um, you've also got the Kia Niro, which is about to be replaced, but the top-spec hybrid version of that's about forty-five nine ninety drive away. Um, and if you want something that's actually a premium badge vehicle, which is sort of like what I think Honda is trying to aim at positioning itself as almost like a Volkswagen, Mazda premium alternative brand. Um, If you're looking at like a base Lexus UX 250H, that's more in well into the the mid to high 50s once you get it on the road. So it's an interesting play, um, but I think where the market's going now is given the supply issues and component shortages that we're seeing at the moment, brands are sort of prioritizing higher grade, higher profit, variants of vehicles and it's a shame they don't have a, a cheaper version of the hybrid but as i'm as I'm, i'll am i explain in a bit like it's actually a really good car and i was pleasantly surprised
3: Wongy, when you think about the hrv the thing that has always made it stand out is interior space my father-in-law has one and it's essentially a work van once you've got those back seats lowered it's extraordinarily spacious like a mary poppins bag on wheels um, <laughs> Now, I had a bit of a poke around the interior of this one when you had it, and Mm -hmm. and I'm sure we'll touch on how much more sophisticated and premium and high-tech inside it feels than before. And I did notice the back seat still do that magic seat deep folding thing. But I also noticed that the boot did seem a little pokier than before, which does kind of come across like a massive issue considering that was such a key purchasing factor in the old one. Is Mm. the boot in fact smaller or do my eyes deceive me? Uh, it's about 130 liters down on the old one, so now
1: oh, no, your eyes are very much in working order, and <laughs> it is it is noticeably. It's it's sort of hard to say because the old one, I think, it, when you look at the space itself, it doesn't necessarily look that much smaller. But the fact that the last one had such a low floor, it there was a a, a level of depth to it that just I think really increased the volume. It's um I think it's about 310 liters, which is actually, is not that much better than a Mazda CX-30, which is one of the lower end of the segment. You you get into to something like a, a Kia Seltos or something like that. And you are well into like the 430, 440 litres, same with the Nissan Qashqai, which are traditional HRV competitors. And the old one was at about 430 litres, which wasn't much of that. But yes, you've still got the magic seats. Um, and when you when you fold those seats flat like you would normally um, it's a very very flat load base so it maintains that level of practicality so if you have tall items like washing machines and things like that or tvs you should be able to get them in there quite well there was a few different configurations that they showed me at the launch because I haven't had that much experience with magic seats but there's like length mode and tour mode and height mode or whatever so you can like basically lay the back seats flat and then have the front passenger seat lay flat so if you have like a surfboard or skis or things like that you can sort of put them through the length of the cabin there's also a really cool function that raises the seat bases of the back up and flips them up against the back rest so that you have um from the floor to the roof so if you have like tall plants and things like that or tall boxes that but you have two people in the front you can sort of sit them vertically in the cabin so there's definitely a a degree of like adjustability and things like that in there but yes it's it's very obviously not as um capacious as the previous one and because I had the hybrid as well the the battery is under the boot floor which um, also cancels out any real underfloor storage there is a cubby under there but there's also no spare tire anymore it's just a tire repair kit.
2: You mentioned uh, that you wish that there was a more affordable hybrid option but for customers that really like the look of the HRV inside and out but don't want to spend this hybrid money I know you've only driven the hybrid so far, but do you think on paper it's worth it just to step down to the normal petrol model?
1: Uh, I think the the H R V hybrid brings a f- several like quite desirable features that would probably be very missed if you went to the the basey. Um, the base petrol also is not very powerful on paper. We're getting one in a few weeks, so it'll be a good a good thing to sort of drive it and see how it compares but um you could lose out on things like a leather steering wheel and like you get less speakers and there's a few other things that you miss out on which just seem like silly uh misses and but at the same time that the base one might feel more befitting of the price given the nine grand gap the other thing is to consider as well is that the, the hybrid's already starting to have wait lists stretch out to about three to four months, given that I think is the, the one that everyone wants to buy. Um, so if you want if you can settle for the petrol after driving it and being happy with the performance, you can actually get one more readily available.
3: Wongi, well, when I think about the old HRV, it you know, it was always as we sort of touched on, it was always about practicality, quality, you know, just just basic motoring it never really drove that well it wasn't offensively bad its ride quality was okay it it technically got around corners but it certainly wasn't some agile nippy you know hatchback in in the way that it drove does this new one justify its price hike by actually driving better? Does it does it feel a bit more cohesive and sporty and dynamic behind the wheel than the car that came before it? And is it still comfortable as well? Um, yeah, that,
1: that's a really interesting question. Do I think it justifies the price tag alone with its driving dynamics? Probably not, but it is definitely a much better um, well-rounded package um, on the road. It's from my actually, my memory of the old HIV was that certain variants I did actually find a touch offensive because I felt they were so like average, considering especially towards the end of its life, you weren't uh, you were asking quite a lot of money. Like a top spec VTI LX of the previous generation was 42 grand drive away. So the hybrid doesn't actually seem that much of a stretch when you actually look at it by um, comparison. And this new one, like the ride quality was excellent. There's a couple of really um, jarry road joins around the Melbourne office in Docklands because there's so much construction. And so many different road surfaces. And there's this one bump in um, one of the surrounding streets that every most cars that I've gone over that um, bump or road join with, uh, particularly from like a mainstream conventional car set, have all been very sharp over the rear end. The the HRV was one of the most damped and comfortable vehicles and settled really nicely over that bump. And the way that it handles, the way that it um, sits on the road, it doesn't feel like a cheap car that's sort of been... Enlarged in every dimension anymore. It's definitely much uh, more comfortable. It feels a lot more dynamic. It's it steers well. It rides well. Um, even that hybrid powertrain on paper, ninety six kilowatts doesn't seem like a lot, especially these days when you've got turbocharged rivals with more grunt and and better load down response. But I think that um, compared to especially like a Toyota system, I've driven a couple of uh, other brand hybrids lately, um, namely the Havel H6 hybrid and and now the HRV. And I've I've spent a lot of time in the equivalent Toyotas. And it's actually quite interesting to see how some of the other brands are doing hybrid technology where I I think personally, the drivability and refinement is much, much better than an equivalent Toyota. The HRV's hybrid system is excellent. Um, The insulation from noise and vibration from the petrol engine is some of the best that I've experienced so far. Um, The way that it transitions between petrol and electric power is seamless. And sometimes I actually had to look down at the dash to see if the EV light was on because I genuinely could not tell. Um, Mm -hmm. The only thing that, perhaps wasn't so great is that like most um, naturally aspirated hybrid vehicles, particularly ones with CVT transmissions, is that once you really boot it and it sort of has to rev out, you do run out of puff because it is a small petrol engine with no force induction or anything. So, it says that it revs out to like 8,000 RPM and still is producing 96 kilowatts. But 96 kilowatts still is not a lot of grunt, even though the HRV hybrid's not that Heavy of a vehicle. But I think what Honda's done really well there is that its um, electronic CVT transmission has simulated gears in it so that we've come to expect from some of the Japanese brands that really stick with CVTs. So even though you're revving it out and you get that like v y rumble, it's definitely not as coarse as, uh, say, something like a CHR, which is bloody noisy when you get on it. And um, it sort of has little gear steps to it. So it sounds a bit sporty when you do it as well. Um, it also has a, a B mode, which allows you to adjust different levels of um, regenerative braking. So, you can almost drive it like an EV. It won't quite come to a full stop the same way that you might in a proper electric vehicle with a full um, regen system, but it's actually like just really easy to drive and very comfortable and it all sort of just works. It's it. The, I sort of drew the comparison to some European products like a Volkswagen, for example, where everything sort of just works and it's all really nice and I think the, the rest of you would agree that you get into like a standard Golf versus like a standard Mazda 3 or or Corolla from like yesteryear or whatever and there was just that like nice air of ambience and quality to it and like like the interior just feels insulated and everything feels really solidly built and that's sort of like what I got from this HRV and the consistency of even like things down to like the the fonts on throughout the infotainment and the buttons and everything and there was nice clicks to how everything operated and it's all just clean lines and simple it's just sort of like a back-to-base but it's all done really well. So I was really impressed with that kind of stuff. Um, And the tech is way better than the old one. The the old one had a genuinely offensive infotainment system, which just seemed like an afterthought. And like every time I looked at it with the old car, it was so annoying. And like if you got a phone call in the old one, you couldn't see maps or you'd you'd flick your indicator and turn on that stupid lane watch camera. But now it's actually got blind spot monitoring. It's got proper rear cross traffic alert. It's got a a genuine semi-autonomous ability with its adaptive cruise control and lane keeping systems. And it's got really good headlights. It's got swishy indicators on the front. Um, The infotainment system, the nine inch um, screen is the same in the Civics. It's got wireless Apple CarPlay. Sorry, Android users, you still have to use your USB cable, which means you should just move to an Apple phone. But the the responses (laughs) are great. And animations are slick. Um, it was very, very reliable. The integrated mapping doesn't look like something out of those cheap GPS units that you got from um, Dick Smith, uh, like the old one. Like it's it's just so much better. And I think that maybe that was what surprised me so much is just how far of a step forward this new ones come. I don't know whether that's also come from sourcing it from Japan rather than Thailand, because I know Thailand's version of the CRV is a little bit different to ours. But um, for those who perhaps were a little bit Disappointed by the old HRV, we thought it was a little long in the tooth. It's definitely a much much better car overall. I just don't know if it justifies that price tag. You sort of have to really like the brand and really like that car to maybe stump that kind of money. But I wouldn't necessarily be telling people it's so expensive to not consider it at all. I think it's mm. it's it's worth having a drive and seeing it for yourself. And if you can live with a four seat interior, which I'm sure a lot of people could, but at the begin when you first think about it, you're like, oh, what if I have three people in the need to carry three people in the back in a Emergency! I think it's just sort of like you have to act like you've got a, a mini or a, or a sports coupe that only has four seats in the, in the cabin.
0: <laughs> um, I noticed, joe you gave cost of ownership a nine point five. Why is mm. that?
1: Because it's genuinely the cheapest vehicle to service in its segment. Like we thought Toyota was good. Now Honda does the first five services at one hundred and twenty-five dollars a pop, which is like next to nothing. Um, at twelve thousand. Uh, Sorry, not 12,000, 12-month service intervals. I may have given it a 10 if it was a little bit cheaper and the intervals were 15 or 20,000 Ks. Um, And then also the the fuel economy is really good. So I was averaging like 5.3 litres per 100 Ks without really changing my driving style. And there's quite a mix of environments that I drive through on the way to and from work, including like an 18-kilometre freeway stint. So I thought it was pretty good and um, it's not that far off a Toyota, I think the last time I drove a CHR hybrid, I was getting about 4.8. So it's negligible in the big scheme of things. Mm. Um, and when you, the trade-off is the um, much improved refinement, I feel, with the Honda system. So I'm actually quite excited for the new Civic hybrid later this year because that gets a two-litre version of this drivetrain. So with that extra power in a car that's not that much bigger, um, but has a more sporting and athletic bent, I think that Civic will despite being much more expensive than a Toyota Corolla hybrid and more in line with a, um, a Camry hybrid, I think it'll sort of be like a sporty, fun option that might actually make people think twice about calling a hybrid boring.
0: <laughs> well, that um, if you would like to read the reviews live now and uh, with a car expert rating of 7.8, thank you, James Wong. Thanks for having me. Okay, a review that's just gone live written by you. You've been driving the Ford Escape plug-in hybrid. How did you find your time behind the wheel?
3: So this might be one of the most delayed cars of all time. Um, Ford was talking about bringing this thing to market in 2020, and uh, it's just arriving now um, because, you know, a few things happened in 2020 that might have interrupted global supply chain somewhat. Um, the upside, though, is that Ford has done a pretty commendable job in keeping pricing you know, relatively close to what it was two years ago when it was announced. So 52,490 before on road costs is what Ford said it would be priced at all those, you know, two years ago or more. Um, and it's landed at fifty-three four forty before on road costs. Considering, you know, the price of everything has gone up by multitudes in that period. I think it's a pretty good effort from Ford. There will be, however, a thousand dollar price rise from July this year for those that don't buy the first wave. Um, nevertheless, though, it's relatively well priced for a plug in hybrid SUV. It it's around the same as a top-spec Mitsubishi Eclipse Cross FEV, which is a slightly less capacious and practical vehicle. On the other hand, the Chinese MGHS Plus EV plug-in hybrid retails for 48990 drive away. So that's a bit cheaper, um, as you would expect. The, uh, the Escape ST line with a normal petrol engine that this – FEV is based on is $37,990, so there's a bit of a price gap for all that technology. Um, What technology am I talking about? Well, uh, it gets rid of the turbo petrol engine that we're used to and replaces it with a 2.5-litre petrol engine running the Atkinson drive cycle, the very efficient Atkinson drive cycle, pairs it to an electric Uh, motor generator and a 14.4 kilowatt hour lithium ion battery powers the front wheels with 167 kilowatts of power. So it's no slouch, about nine seconds to 100. Um, But of course, with plug-in hybrid vehicles, what you want to know is efficiency. So one and a half litres every 100 Ks is the claim, although as always with plug-in hybrids, it's incredibly variable and contingent on your charge status. And it can do a claimed 56 kilometres of pure electric driving, which of course is the point of a plug-in hybrid unlike a normal toyota hybrid you can do your daily commuting as a silent zero emissions from the tailpipe electric car but you don't have to worry about getting stuck on the side of the road if you do a long trip because you've got that petrol engine there that can get you home again so um, perhaps one of the more interesting aspects before i open the floor up to questions (laughs) is um (laughs) the uh the fact that there are four driving modes some of them are familiar Mitsubishi in particular offers a similar setup. EV Auto is the sort of default set and forget mode. You get in, you drive, it will uh, use the reserves of battery power as much as it can with just the very occasional sip of petrol here and there on you know very hard throttle moments or uphill moments. And if you're doing that, leaving with a full charge, um, that 1.5 litre per 100k mark for the first 100k is actually genuinely achievable. Um, you've also got EV Now, which prioritises battery miles and make sure that it really is an EV until the battery's dead. EV later, which uh, basically tells the car to keep the battery at a set level and will rely on petrol power to make that happen. So that say you get into a zero emission zone later, if you're in Europe, um, you can use it that way. Or an EV charge mode where the actual engine charges the battery all the way up if you want it to. Cannot fathom why you do that because it's the least efficient way to charge a battery, but there you go. Um, The best way to charge a plug-in hybrid is always ways at home, whether by a three-prong wall socket overnight, which is something that you can do very easily, or getting a wall box installed at home or at work for a few grand and zapping it up in no time flat. So, this vehicle kind of does the typical FEV things, but it's from a new brand with a new badge uh, to the market of FEVs, that is, not the general market, and so has a lot to appeal. Guys, ask away. What have you got? Can you charge it with a DC charger? You can't because it doesn't have the uh, CCS type attachment point. Um, uh, most FEVs, to be honest with you, can't do, can't do rapid charging to that degree. So it's okay. Um, because it's such a small capacity battery compared to a conventional all electric car, um, it would it would be something that probably wouldn't be particularly wise to engineer in because ultimately, rapid charging all the time does deplete the battery's life and um, it doesn't have as much range to start with. So you'd you'd, you'd lose you'd lose a, a smaller overall range if you fast charge too often.
0: I know this can vary from from everybody in terms of what you're going to use the car for. But which one would you get the you know, over the petrol or? The Fev, which one do you think is better value?
3: Well, I think the plug-in hybrid is actually, I mean, it's very hard to justify the price of a plug-in hybrid at the moment in any brand, quite frankly. Toyota's normal hybrids, um, they're only two or three grand more than the non-hybrids, and so you can very easily do the sums and work out. You can pay back the fuel differences in a couple of years. Plug-in hybrids is not so much uh, that. It's very contingent on your life cycle too, lifestyle too. So if you have solar panels on your roof and you've got a really sort of cheap and, and, and zero emission way of charging it at home, it makes more sense. I think the thing to keep in mind with this plug-in hybrid, though, is the fact that at very worst, it's a normal hybrid. So if you have exhausted that battery and you're relying on petrol power, it will still do regenerative braking. It will still tap into what is left in the sort of unusable reserves of battery to just help that petrol engine along on hard, high-stress moments like taking off. Um, And so I was averaging 5.1 litres every 100 k's, even with a flat, drive battery. So at very worst, it's a hybrid and at best, it's a zero emission sort of way to sort of dip your toes into the zero emission waters, as it were. Um, And at the end of the day, the the Ford Escape is a a very, very, very good package. It's a bit underappreciated, I think. Its interior is a little bit dated in some ways, but everything is really ergonomic and works well. It's quite dynamic and agile. It handles quite well through corners. It rides nicely. It looks pretty sharp. The pricing against its FEV competitors is actually quite reasonable, Um, so I don't think you can make an economic only argument for it. But I don't think you can make an economic argument really for any plug-in hybrid. It's more a case of if it's if it's a vehicle that you sort of aspire to, if you really enjoy the technology, and you want to have something electric, but you can't yet go the full whole hog. It's not a bad place to be, and I have to say, it impressed me more than either the Eclipse Cross. Or the MGHS, um, and it's going to be cheaper, I would imagine, than the new gen Outlander from Mitsubishi, the plug in hybrid version that's just around the corner.
2: So, um, interestingly, unlike the Mitsubishi plug in hybrids, uh, but like the MGHS, this is front wheel drive only. Mm. Um, how, how well does it get the power to the ground? Because I've found driving the front wheel drive Escape with a two litre turbo, which is a fantastic engine, it does feel like maybe a little bit too much power for a front wheel drive.
3: Yeah, it's interesting you say that. Not a lot of torque steer, not a lot of axle tramping, um, a bit less power than you get in that two litre turbo, which certainly helps. Um, and you also get that instant jolt of electric takeoff, but not so much that it constantly overwhelms the front wheels. So So no, I actually found it a bit more manageable, but you do touch on a good point, which is the Mitsubishi system has that two-motor all-wheel drive system, which is a real winning point because it gives you the promise of adventure and the ability to go off the beaten path a bit that the Ford doesn't do. Um, It's a much more efficiency-focused vehicle. Um, So you're right, the all-wheel drive thing is probably a loss, but at least the Ford doesn't, yeah, torque steer and axle tramp and do all those horrible things that overly powerful front-wheel drive cars can tend to do.
0: How did you find the regenerative braking
3: I'd love it if there were more modes to play with, actually. There are some cars now where you can actually toggle through different degrees of it and do things like one-pedal driving and you can really maximise it or minimise it and and toggle away. This is a much more sort of simple, you know, set-and-forget type vehicle, so um, it does its thing in in sort of quietly like a normal hybrid car does. It makes all the familiar noises that a hybrid car does. Ultimately, you'll probably be a bit easier on your brake pads than you would be in a a non-hybrid vehicle, but I can't say that there's anything particularly spectacular about it by any means.
0: Yeah. All right. That review is live at carexpert.com.au. That's an end for this week's podcast. Now, Atco or Chris Atkinson, uh, what has he been racing like recently, Will?
2: Well, um, I had to help take some cars out to Queensland Raceway uh, today for him. Had to.
3: Had to. to. I'm sure you hated it. (laughs) uh,
2: It's such a tough life. And then he made me get in the car and drive uh, laps, you (laughs) know. (laughs) Taskmaster. Um, No, so today uh, we had at the track two Subaru BRZs, the old. Subaru BRZ and the new Subaru
3: BRZ. And Hang on. Just let me interject for those listening at home who don't know who Chris Atkinson is. This is a guy who was a world rally championship driver for Subaru factory. So when we say we're putting the right guy behind the wheel of a Subaru sports car, we really mean it. There's probably nobody in the world who could be more qualified.
2: Yep. Pretty much. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So he's going to be putting together uh, an article um, where he'll be discussing how the uh, old and new compare. So that'll be very interesting. Um, Having driven both of those cars uh, back to back, you know, you can definitely feel some differences, but I'm Mm. just a a lay person compared to Chris Atkinson and he's going (laughs) to have some much more detailed observations for you. all Um, We also had a Volkswagen Golf R at the track. Um, We are going to be taking another Volkswagen R product to the track next week, a Tiguan R. Um, So that will be very interesting because on our leaderboard, correct me if I'm wrong, Mike, there are a few SUVs, but um, there's definitely a lot more in the way of of coupes and – Hot sedans and hot hatches, so it'll be very curious to see how the first R branded uh, SUV introduced to Australia goes on the track. And we'll have to mm. see when the uh, T-Rock R comes if we can get that onto the track as well.
3: I'm still um, trying to convince uh, uh, Atco and Boars uh, Alboars to um, to take a Jimny around the track just, just for just for you know, just for shits and giggles, right? Tip
2: it over just to set the measure, <laughs> you know. Oh, sometimes I just think whenever I get in the car with Atco because whenever I go to the track with him i'm like oh you have to take me for a ride around the track yeah. with you um because it's just it's something else being he's so i don't mean i'm sure you could probably say this about a lot of professional like rally drivers and race car drivers but he's just so calm he is mm-hmm. pelting it down the straight at you know 150 kilometers an hour taking corners at 100 and you look over he's perfectly calm he's just making observations It's like yeah yeah the clutch is a bit different in this. Yeah, the shifter action's
3: is really good. And I, I should mention that Queensland Raceway is quite a tight little circuit. So, those speeds don't sound particularly high, but on some corners they are. <laughs>
2: yeah. <laughs> um, and they've been doing uh, quite a bit of work at Queensland Raceway as well. They've put up a couple of new structures and that. So, I, have, I actually hadn't been there for a few months and it looked almost completely different when I was there. Uh, but I'll be back again next week. We'll see if much has changed then uh, because we'll be taking those two hours, the track and I... We may also be taking a Subaru WRX, um, which brings me to our uh, calendar uh, for cars that we've got through our respective garages. We've got quite a few WRXs, seeing as it's just been launched. Um, In Melbourne, uh, we have got the WRX RS manual sedan. Um, And up in Brisbane, um, I'm getting into a WRX RS manual sedan. (laughs) Who's going to write that review?
3: (laughs) Ah, but you see, down here in Melbourne, we're going to go a cut above because we are going to put it into a comparison with a certain Hyundai i30N sedan manual because there ain't that many manual hot sedans left anymore. So we'll take two of pretty much the only ones that do remain and we'll stick them side by side so you can do yours in isolation and we'll do ours in a twin test and when everybody wins right
2: oh, yours <laughs> sounds more fun <laughs> can't wait to read that uh but it's not just WRXs access through our garage we've got some other uh vehicles we've got another comparison uh coming up uh, a little bit tamer outlander exceed all-wheel drive versus sportage gt line with the 1.6 liter turbo petrol um we've got a oh Another hot SUV, so go to Kodiak RS. I just spent some time in the Sportline, uh, so the RS will be very interesting. Now that that's shifted from a turbo diesel to a turbo petrol. Um, speaking of SUVs, uh, an MG HS Plus EV plug-in hybrid through the garage, um, and also a Lexus RX four hundred and fifty H, just a regular hybrid or. As Toyota calls it, a self-charging hybrid. <laughs>
3: mm, <yes.
2: laughs> Grown. It um, defies
3: physics and it's uh, perpetual motion machine somehow. Mm.
2: <laughs> um, we also have in Sydney another Skoda Kodiak, so that is the style, the base Kodiak. And up here in Brisbane, our calendar's getting fleshed out a little bit. Um, in addition to the aforementioned WRX, we've got a Kia Picanto GT line. I oh, cute. believe the Picanto was actually the first car I ever reviewed for car expert um uh, so that's interesting uh, mine was just the s though um and um Teddyana, i believe will be driving that one and i oh, will be driving an alfa romeo julia you know I I, I I clearly lost the uh, rock paper scissors competition there but you
0: know <laughs> it has been very fun uh this week thank you very much mike costello and William topfall
2: you always say that like it's a surprise yeah, it's been rather fun today <laughs> it's always fun mandy it
0: is.
3: Thank you. <laughs> Great to be here, Andy, as always. I'll see you next time.
0: It was uh... fun.